Section 73 of the United States. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The World Story, Volume 12, The United States. Edited by Eva March Tappan. Section 73. Benjamin Franklin, Before the House of Commons, 1766 by James Parton. In 1766, Franklin was in England as the leading representative for the colonies. In this capacity, he was called before the House of Commons for an examination on the condition of the colonies and colonists. Burke said that this scene always reminded him of a master examined by a parcel of schoolboys. The Editor This celebrated examination was by no means the impromptu affair which it seemed to be. Among the liberal members of Parliament, Dr. Franklin had a large number of friends, with whom, as we know, he had many times conversed upon all the subjects in dispute between the colonies and the ministry. These gentlemen, knowing precisely what Franklin had to offer on every topic, kept proposing to him the very questions which they were aware would bring him out in his greatest force. All their leading questions, moreover, he expected, and was prepared for. The questions are, therefore, to be divided into two classes, those put by the opponents of the Stamp Act and those proposed by its advocates. The object of one party was to give the American philosopher the best opportunity to serve his cause, the object of the other to puzzle, entrap, and confound him. One set of questions enabled him to display his knowledge, and the other set his acuteness. The first thirteen questions, all proposed by two of Dr. Franklin's friends, were designed to elicit certain facts, generally unknown in England, which being known the whole argument for the Stamp Act was untenable. These facts were, first, that the colonies were then struggling under a load of debt and taxation caused by the very war which it was alleged Britain had waged solely for their defense and aggrandizement, and, secondly, that the enforcement of the Stamp Act, owing to the vast extent of the country, the thinness of the population and the poverty of the frontier inhabitants, was impossible. A man in the back country, said Franklin, who happened to want a stamp for a deed or receipt, would have to take a month's journey to get it, spending perhaps three or four pounds that the crown might get sixpence. When these points had been brought out with the utmost clearness, Franklin, citing his knowledge of the country gained by his connection with the post office, the concerted game between himself and his friends was stopped for a moment by three questions from an adversary. Are not the colonies able to pay the stamp duty? asked this gentleman. Their mere ability could not be denied, and the question was, therefore, answered thus. In my opinion, there is not gold and silver enough in the colonies to pay the stamp duty for one year. This ingenious evasion did not throw the enemy off the scent. Don't you know, continued the member, that all the money arising from the stamps is to be laid out in America? True, replied the witness, but it is to be spent 
in the conquered colonies in Canada, where the soldiers are, not in the colonies that pay it. The member then asked if there was not a balance of trade against Canada that would bring the money back to the old colonies. Franklin thought not. The money, he said, would go to England for goods, as colonial money was only too apt to do. At this point, the enemy desisted, and the friend of Dr. Franklin succeeded in getting in nine questions, which drew from the witness a statement of the population and resources of the colonies designed to show the folly of estranging them. He told Parliament that North America contained 300,000 men capable of taking the field, and that the colonies imported every year from Great Britain 500,000 pounds worth of goods. This information was brought out with great force. The friendly questioner then tried to get Dr. Franklin to repeat before the High Court of Parliament a little joke with which he had amused a Tory member a few days before. They were talking over the various plans that had been suggested for making the Stamp Act palatable to the Americans. The Tory, who was a most strenuous advocate of the Stamp Act, told Dr. Franklin that if he would but assist the ministry a little, the act could easily be amended so as to make it at least tolerable to the colonists. I must confess, the doctor gravely replied, I have thought of one amendment. If you will make it, the act may remain, and yet the Americans will be quieted. It is a very small amendment, too. It is only the change of a single word. The Tory was all attention. It is in that clause, continued Franklin, where it is said that from and after the first day of November, 1765, there shall be paid, etc. The amendment I would propose is for one. Read two and then all the rest of the act may stand as it does. The examining member endeavored to bring out this piece of nonsense by asking the witness whether he could not propose a small amendment that would make the act acceptable. The witness, however, evaded the question and explained afterwards that he thought that the answer expected of him too light and ludicrous for the house. Mr. George Grenville the proposer of the Stamp Act, now recurred to his fixed idea. Do you think it right, he asked, that America should be protected by this country and pay no part of the expense? To this, Franklin replied that the colonies during the last war had raised, clothed, and sent to the field 25,000 men and spent millions of pounds. Were you not reimbursed by Parliament? asked Grenville. Franklin explained that the colonies were reimbursed only to the amount which Parliament thought they had exceeded their just proportion of the expense. Pennsylvania, for instance, had expended 500,000 pounds and received back 60,000. The advocates of the Act continued the examination. One asked if the Americans would pay the Stamp Act if the rate of duty was reduced. No, replied the American, never unless compelled by force of arms. Another asked, Does not the Assembly of Pennsylvania, the majority of whom are landowners, lay the taxes 
so as to impose the heaviest burdens upon trade and spare the land. Franklin's reply to this was very ingenious and Adam Smithian. If unequal burdens are laid on trade, the tradesman puts an additional price on his goods, and the consumers, who are chiefly landowners, finally pay the greatest part, if not the whole. Besides this, he denied that the assembly did impose unequal burdens. The enemy plied him with a dozen questions more, but extracted small comfort from him. Then his friends had an inning, and gave him several opportunities, which improved the most telling manner. Nothing that he said produced such an impression, either in the house or out of doors, as his next few replies. What, asked a friendly member, was the temper of America towards Great Britain before the year 1763? Best in the world, said the witness. They submitted willingly to the government of the crown and paid in their courts obedience to acts of parliament. Numerous as the people are in the old provinces, they cost you nothing in forts, citadels, garrisons, or armies to keep them in subjection. They were governed by this country at the expense only of a little pen, ink, and paper. They were led by a thread. They had not only a respect, but an affection for Great Britain, for its laws, its customs, and manners, and even a fondness for its fashions that greatly increased the commerce. Natives of Britain were always treated with particular regard. To be an old England man was, of itself, a character of some respect, and gave a kind of rank among us. What is their temper now? asked the same friend. Oh, very much altered was the reply. In what light, continued the friendly member, did the people of America use to consider the Parliament of Great Britain? Franklin replied, they considered the Parliament as the great bulwark in security of their liberties and privileges, and always spoke of it with the utmost respect and veneration. Arbitrary ministers, they thought, might possibly at times attempt to oppress them, but they relied on it that the Parliament, on application, would always give redress. He added, in reply to another question, that this feeling was greatly lessened by the recent measures. The Stamp Act men then asked several questions, which were intended to draw forth an admission that the colonies were abundantly able to pay an additional tax. One question was, why the people in America increased faster than the English at home? Because they marry younger, and because more of them marry, replied this unrelenting political economist. Why so? Because any young couple, if they are industrious, can get land and support a family. Then are not the lower ranks of people more at their ease in America than in England? They may be so if they are sober and diligent, as they are better paid for their labor. How would the Americans receive a future tax imposed on the same principle as the Stamp Act? Just as they do the Stamp Act, they would not pay it. The friends of the Act then tried to corner the acute American by asking him whether, in case an assembly should refuse to vote the supplies necessary to the support of colonial government, Parliament would not be justified in taxing the people. 
He thought not. For, if an assembly could possibly be so absurd, the disorders that would arise in the province would soon bring them to reason. But, persisted the questioner, suppose they should not, ought there not be a remedy in the power of the home government? Franklin said he would not object to the interference of Parliament in such a case, provided its interference was merely for the good of the people. But who is the judge of that, Britain or Colony? This was rather a home thrust. The witness parried it thus. Those who feel can best judge. The Tory members affected to be incapable of perceiving any difference in principle between the duties laid upon imports from foreign countries, which the colonists paid without a murmur, and the Stamp Act, which with one voice they resisted. The difference is very great, said Dr. Franklin. The duty is added to the first cost and other charges on the commodity, and when it is offered for sale, makes a part of the price. If the people do not like it at the price, they refuse it. They are not obliged to pay it. But an internal tax is forced from the people without their consent, if not laid by their own representatives. But, asked the member, supposing the external tax to be laid on the necessaries of life. Franklin astonished Parliament by replying that the colonists imported no article which they could not dispense with or supply the place of cloth? asked one. Yes, they could make all their cloth, but would it not take long to establish the manufacture? Before their old clothes are worn out, they will have new ones of their own making. But is there wool enough in America? The people have taken measures to increase their supply of wool. They combined to eat no lamb last year, and very few lambs were killed. In three years we shall have wool in abundance. But is not the American wool very inferior in quality, a kind of hair merely? No, it is very fine and good. A liberal member asked whether anything less than military force could carry the Stamp Act into execution. Franklin said that a military force could not do it. Suppose, said he, a military force sent into America, they will find nobody in arms. What are they then to do? They cannot force a man to take stamps who chooses to do without them. They will not find a rebellion. They may, indeed, make one. If the act is not repealed, asked one of Dr. Franklin's particular friends, what do you think will be the consequence? He replied, total loss of the respect and affection the people of America bear to this country, and of all the commerce that depends on that respect and affection. How can the commerce be affected? The goods, said Franklin, which the Americans take from Britain, are either necessaries, mere conveniences, or superfluities. The first, as cloth, with a little industry, they can make at home. The second, they can do without till they are able to provide them among themselves. And the last, which are much the greatest part, they will strike off immediately. They are mere articles of fashion, purchased and consumed because the fashion in a respected country, but will now be detested and rejected. The people have already struck off 
by general agreement, the use of all goods fashionable in mornings, and many thousand pounds worth are sent back as unsaleable. Mr. Grenville returned to the charge. He asked whether postage, to which the Americans did not object, was not a tax. No, replied the deputy postmaster general. It is payment for service rendered, nor is it even compulsory, since no man is obliged by law to employ the post office. Having thus displayed his incapacity, Mr. Grenville next proceeded to exhibit his ignorance. Do not the Americans, he asked, consider the regulations of the post office by the act of last year as a tax? Franklin informed him that the act of last year reduced the rate of postage 30% throughout America, which abatement, he added, the Americans certainly did not regard in the light of a tax. Mr. Grenville was silent for a while. In reply to other Tory questioners, Dr. Franklin gave another point of difference between an external and an internal tax. The sea is yours, he said. You maintain by your fleets the safety of navigation in it and keep it clear of pirates. You may have, therefore, a natural and equitable right to some toll or duty on merchandise carried through that part of your dominions towards defraying the expense you are adding ships to maintain the safety of that carriage. To the questions of friends he gave answer after answer, demonstrating the impossibility of enforcing the oddest act in America. When asked if the colonists would prefer to forego the collection of debts by legal process rather than use stamped paper, he replied, I can only judge what other people will think and how they will act by what I feel within myself. I have a great many debts due to me in America, and I had rather they should remain unrecoverable by any law than submit to the Stamp Act. They will be debts of honor. The leading advocates of the Stamp Act tried by a variety of questions to extort from Dr. Franklin an intimation that, in case the act was repealed, the colonists would not object to pay a small internal tax, imposed merely to assert the right to tax. The Tory members would not understand that the opposition to the Stamp Act was an opposition to the principle involved in it. They kept insinuating that it was merely a mean begrudging of the sixpence. They supposed that if the amount of the tax were reduced, the warmth of the opposition would be abated. To one of the questions founded upon this opinion, Dr. Franklin made a reply that was long enough for a speech. Reviewing the history of the two French wars, he showed that the colonists, so far from being parsimonious, had lavished both men and treasure in aiding the home government to execute its projects. They had done far more than their part. They had involved themselves so deeply that twenty years of peace and prosperity would be necessary to set them free from debt. He quoted from a king's speech in which the zeal and liberality of the colonists had been handsomely acknowledged. He reminded Parliament that the wars of which the colonies had borne the burden and suffered the calamities had not been waged chiefly for their own sake. It was for the honor and advancement of the British Empire 
that they had spent their substance and shed their blood, and all they had done for their country they had done with eager willingness, and asked no reward but the approbation of their king and of that house. When he had finished this long harangue, a friend asked him whether the colonies would help the mother country in a war purely European. This question gave him an opportunity to expatiate further on the same theme. He answered that they would not do so beyond question. They considered themselves part of the British Empire. Its honor was their honor, its welfare their welfare. He took occasion also to show that such expeditions as that of General Braddock were not a benefit to the colonies, for it was not until Braddock had been defeated that the Indians had been troublesome. To show the willingness of the colonies to grant money to the crown, he said he had been specially instructed to assure the ministry that they were ready to vote all the aid they could afford whenever their aid was solicited in a constitutional manner. The Stamp Act members appeared still to find great difficulty in discerning the difference between an external and an internal tax, and seemed to think that to be consistent, the Americans ought to object equally to both. Dr. Franklin gave an exquisite reply to one who insinuated such an opinion. Many arguments, said he, have been used to show the Americans that there is no difference between an internal and an external tax. At present, they do not reason so, but in time they may possibly be convinced by these arguments. A rattling fire of short questions and answers brought to a conclusion this long examination. A friend asked at length, What used to be the pride of the Americans? To indulge, said the witness, in the fashions and manufactures of Great Britain. What is now their pride? To wear their old clothes over again till they can make new ones. Dr. Franklin withdrew, and the committee rose. End of section 73. This recording is in the public domain. Recording by Parsa Jafarian, Montreal.